Have you ever watched a toddler eat? You know, it's been a little while since we've had toddlers in our home, but I still remember just the messiness of that experience. Somehow they find a way to get more food on their face and on the floor than in their mouth. They seem bound and determined to prove that you can actually eat applesauce with your fingers. Uh, they also make interesting food choices as well. I mean, who would have ever thought of dipping your chicken nuggets into yogurt? On one particular occasion, though, I remember Pierce when he was about two years old and he was eating Cheerios. Now, Cheerios are great because they're not a messy food, and so he's eating there, but he still had this way of when he ate a Cheerio, he would stick like his whole fist in his mouth. And so I'm talking to him as he's eating and saying, oh, bud, those look so good, aren't they yummy, and all this. And so anyway, he takes a Cheerio, he sticks his whole fist in his mouth, he pulls it out, and as best he can, he says, here you go. Now, not only do toddlers struggle with eating, they also struggle with sharing. And so I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity. I don't know what I'm going to do with the Cheerio, but I tell them, oh, thanks, bud. That's so great. Yeah, thank you. I'll take that. And then I tried to hide it in my pocket or something. Well, he really liked that. I mean, he was just kind of beaming at the fact that I would take this Cheerio from him. And so he takes his next Cheerio, sticks his whole fist in his mouth, pulls it out and says, here you go. Well, that was enough sharing for the day. I mean, at that point, I'm telling Pierce, hey, you know, dad is full. I mean, thank you so much, but I'm done, really. That's all yours. Well, he didn't care for that as much. And so he takes another Cheerio, puts his whole fist in his mouth, pulls it out and says, here you go. And again, I'm saying, no, bud, thank you, really, but I'm full. This is all yours. And as I'm talking mid-sentence, like the flash, he just takes it and sticks it in my mouth. It was nasty. I mean, I am still recovering. That's why I'm sharing the story with you today. But, you know, you would know when you're entering mealtime with toddlers that things can get messy, that things can get ugly, that there's going to be some cleanup required. The truth is that we may progress past the toddler stage, we still make messes, don't we? There's still a cleanup required. So how do you live in a messy world, in an ugly world where there is cleanup needed all the time? You know, that's a question that the minor prophets deal with. And so this morning, we're entering into our series together for the 757 because one of the things the minor prophets tells us is that this life is not to be meant alone. It can't be cleaned up alone. It's got to be together. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this year. But before we dive just right in headfirst into the Minor Prophets, I want to make sure that we understand the background, the context in which these prophets spoke. And so this morning, we're going to kind of go through the history of the nation of Israel and specifically just looking at what happened to her and what led to her demise and how the Minor Prophets spoke into this. So to do that, we're going to end up in 2 Kings chapter 17 verses 6 through 19 where we really hear about the death of this nation but before we get there I just want to kind of go back to the beginning and outline the history for you so it begins with creation God creates everything he creates the universe humanity everything in it 
humanity falls because of her sin. And because of her sin, there's now this sin nature that all of humanity inherits. And humanity gets so bad, her sin is so wicked, that God sends a flood to the whole earth. He wipes everything out except Noah and his family. And then God makes a promise that he's not going to do that again. Humanity begins to repopulate, regrow, but they cycle back into sin again, trying to be like God, trying to reach God. God, he divides them with many languages into many nations. But God always wanted a nation for himself. And so he made a promise to this wandering nomad Abraham, and he told him that even him, even though he was way past childbearing years, he and his wife Sarah, that they would have a son, and that this son would be the start of a mighty nation, a nation for God himself to be a light to all the other nations. And so they did miraculously have a son. Isaac was born. Isaac, he had two sons, Esau and Jacob. But the line didn't go through the oldest Esau. Esau, because of his sin and being deceived by Jacob, the line would go through Jacob. Jacob, he would have many sons. But the oldest son, Reuben, because of his sin, the line was then split. And you have the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 tribes of Israel, they're going to end up in Egypt because of one of the sons, Joseph. And he goes to work for Pharaoh. He becomes a ruler, a leader in Egypt. He does great things in Egypt. And this family that started as a family, a large family in Egypt, will become a mighty nation there. And as the centuries roll on, you have this mighty nation, Israel, living in Egypt. And there's a new pharaoh in Egypt, and he sees all these people, and he gets scared. Because he knows if they ever rally together, there could be this uprising that Egypt could not stop. And so he has all the Hebrew people enslaved. They live in captivity and bondage in Egypt. Until God raises up another servant, Moses, and he uses Moses to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt. They end up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years until the next leader, Joshua, leads them into the land that God had told them they would possess. And they begin to possess this land under Joshua's leadership. When Joshua died, it went through a time where Israel was led and governed by a series of judges. But Israel, well, she wanted to be like all the other nations. She sees all these other nations with kings, and she wants a king for herself. So she chooses Saul. Saul has no heart. He's not a good king. So God chooses a king of his choice. He chooses David. David, while not perfect, had a whole heart, a man after God's heart. The next king would be Solomon. Solomon, well, he was half and half. At times he was leading well after God's heart. At times he was just following his own vision. After Solomon came Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Now, when Rehoboam became king, one of Solomon's advisors, Jeroboam, approached uh, Rehoboam and said, hey, your father has heavily taxed our people. You need to do away with and abolish this heavy taxation that's oppressive that Solomon put on us. 
Well, Rehoboam, he takes this issue to his advisors, two sets of advisors. First, he goes to the older advisors and he says, what do you think we should do? Should we lessen their taxes or not? And the older advisors say, yes, you should lessen their taxes. It is oppressive. He goes to the younger advisors and should we lessen their taxes or not? And they say, no, if anything, you should raise them. And if they're going to complain about it, you should send scorpions on them as they protest. You should punish them for, for being disobedient and disloyal to you. Well, Rehoboam, he takes the counsel of his younger advisors. He raises the taxes. At that time, Jeroboam, he leads a rebellion of the people and the kingdom, Israel, is now split into two nations. You have the northern kingdom, Israel, and you have the southern kingdom, Judah. This morning, we're going to look at what happened really to that northern kingdom, Israel. This would be led by Jeroboam. The southern kingdom Judah would continue to be led by uh, Rehoboam. That would be her first king. Uh, As we look into 2 Kings chapter 17 verses 1 through 13 this morning, it's the account of the fall of the northern kingdom. And uh, you need to understand that the northern kingdom, it survived roughly 200 years before this fall takes place, after Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was a time shortly before Israel's demise where everything seemed to be going along great. The northern kingdom was expanding her borders. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they lived in a time of relative peace and prosperity. Uh, But as all this was taking place, God was sending prophets. Prophets to warn Israel that, hey, unless you repent from all of your sin, all of your wicked ways, there are storm clouds on the horizon And this is not going to end well for you. And so God, he did. He sent prophets like Elijah and Elisha, like Amos and Hosea. But Israel ignored the words of the prophets and her demise was soon. Meanwhile, in the southern kingdom, you should also know that Judah, about 20 years prior to 2 Kings 17, received a prophecy from Isaiah. This was during the reign of King Uzziah at the end of his reign and at the beginning of the reign of his son Jotham. Now, Uzziah, the Bible says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and that his son Jotham, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And before Uzziah, there was Amaziah and Amaziah also did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And before Amaziah was Joash and the Bible says that he did what was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. So for roughly 100 years, the southern kingdom Judah had had primarily godly leadership. None of these men were perfect. None of these kings were, did everything right. We could go and you could read about their sin, but they were mostly good kings. They mostly did the right thing. The, the northern kingdom Israel, they never had a king like that. Throughout their 200 years, it was bad king after bad king after bad king. But Isaiah would tell uh, the southern kingdom Judah that, hey, what's happening to Israel is going to happen to you that there are storm clouds on your horizon as well. And all Judah had to do was turn her eyes to the north to see what would soon become her future. Isaiah would tell Judah that uh, this nation that God had set aside for himself would one day be laid bare. This promised land that he had led them into would be sitting empty. It would be, it would experience destruction. This place that was supposed to smell like sweet perfume, 
It would carry the stench of rotten waste. He says this people that was supposed to be characterized by life would be characterized by death. It was an ominous prophecy hanging over the southern kingdom. But she never learned the lesson from the northern kingdom, Israel. I want you to see those lessons this morning as we kind of set the scene for the context in which the prophets spoke. Let's check it out. Uh, 2 Kings 17, 6 through 19, it reads, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Hebor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with, the fa- with their fathers and the warnings that he had gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them, and they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal, and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold them to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger." Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. Now, Hosea was the king of the northern kingdom, Israel, and he was evil. If you were to go back and you were to look at the first two verses, you'd see that it says that Hosea was evil, but he wasn't as evil as all the kings that went before him. We love to play the comparison game, don't we? Oh, I may do bad things, I may mess up here and there, but at least I'm nothing like those people. I mean, that's what Hosea could have said, right? He could have said, hey, I may be bad, I may not be perfect, I might not be great, but hey, I'm nothing like the guys that went before me. You should just be thankful that I'm your king. It didn't matter. What God had said would happen through the prophets was about to happen. This was going to be the death of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. And so now this morning, we really are. We've just read the obituary of this nation. And to help us make sense of it all, I just want to walk you through this cycle of sin that took place. And we're going to look through six steps of this, this downward cycle of sin that took place 
in the northern kingdom Israel and how it led to her destruction. And it was the same pattern, unfortunately, that Judah herself would follow. The first thing we see is the summary statement in uh, verse 7, where it says that this occurred because the people had sinned against the Lord their God. The people had sinned against the Lord their God. God wants to be very clear. He doesn't want there ever to be a time when people can just kind of sit around on their ports and speculate. He doesn't want there to be like these people who kind of dig into the history and say, let's go to the library and kind of dig up the archives and we can just ask the question, what led to Israel's demise? You know, God doesn't want that. He doesn't want people kind of speculating, oh, you know what? I don't think Israel kept up militarily. You know, if only she had an army as strong as all the other nations. He doesn't want people speculating, you know, perhaps it was they, they just kind of lost their financial edge. They weren't as innovative in the marketplace as all the other nations were in this kind of, no, God wants to be very clear. The reason why the demise occurred was because the northern kingdom sinned against the Lord their God. Oh yeah, their king was evil, but it wasn't just because they had a bad king. It was the people. They were all guilty. Together they were guilty before God. And because of their sin, this is what happened. Let me take you to step one in, in this cycle of sin. Step one, the end of verse seven. It says that they were brought out of Egypt and that they feared other gods. I mean, can you imagine this? God, he brings these people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And he forms them into his own nation, a nation for himself. And yet they fear other gods. They stopped fearing the one true God. And they feared and they honored and they respected and they revered false gods, fake gods. That's step one. It's replacing the one true God with false gods. When you look at this cycle of sin, it begins when you stop respecting the one true God and you replace him with false gods. Then we get to step two. It's in verse eight. It says that they adopted the customs of other nations. God had rescued them out of Egypt. He had created them to be a people for himself, a people who could be a light to all the other nations. That when the other nations looked to Israel, they should see a people who live differently, who love differently. They should stand out as distinct, but they don't. Instead, they allow all the other nations to inform them and tell them how they ought to live. They allowed culture to redefine their character. And that's step two, allowing culture to define your character. We move into step three. Look at the first part of verse 9. The people did secretly evil things against the Lord their God. Things that weren't right. Things that their conscience was telling them, this isn't right. I shouldn't be doing this so secretly. They try to hide it. Hey, maybe won't, nobody will know. Maybe, maybe the omniscient God won't see. They try to keep everything in the dark, keep everything hidden, keep everything secret. See, that's step three in this downward cycle of sin where you try to keep your sin secret. Keeping sin secret is step three in a downward cycle of sin. Then you get to the last part of verse nine in which it gives us step four. And it says that they built for themselves high places from watchtower to fortified city. 
Now the high places, these were places that they intentionally raised up so that they could go there and worship false gods. So that they could practice their idolatry. And we're seeing here that these high places, well, it just dotted the land. I mean, from watchtower to fortified city, where you, whether you were in the sticks or in the city, it didn't matter. Everywhere, the land was now dotted with this place, these places for idol worship. This is how prevalent it had become. Oh, there was a time when they just get, got there, but it wasn't enough simply to respect the false gods. It was enough to simply have your culture kind of shifted to look like the cultures around them. It wasn't enough now. They become so callous that keeping their sin hidden, it was no longer an issue. Now they're doing it out in the open all over the land. There's this callousness towards it all. And that's step four in this downward cycle of sin, developing a callousness towards sin. Then we get to step five. It's in verses 10 through 15. And here we see that the people of Israel, that they're building uh, pillars and, and uh, they're an ashram and they've made offerings to worship these false gods. And they're provoking the Lord to anger. And so God, in his grace, he continues to send wave after wave of prophets, begging them, telling them, come back. Here's the statutes, here's the commands that you're supposed to live by. But they despise all that. They hate all that. They don't want anything to do with that anymore. The people would not listen. God sends prophets. He sends messengers. They will not listen. God in his strength and his might, he's done all these things. They will not listen. They will not listen. And they reach this point where they don't even want to hear it. It makes their stomach just turn. It makes them sick to even think about it. They no longer just, hey, want to try to ignore it. They're no longer just embarrassed by God's commands. No, now they think that that covenant that God had made with Moses, oh, that's outdated. We don't want, we don't want anything to do with that. Don't define us by that anymore. That doesn't really apply to us. They hate it. They hate it. It's not just that they're embarrassed by it. They hate it. They despise it. See, that's step five. You despise God and his commands. That's step five in this downward cycle of sin, despising God and his commands. And, and then it all culminates with step six. To see step six, I, I want to read the end of verse 15 through verse 18 for you again. And it says this, They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. And they made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens. And sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. An Asherah was a wooden deity. She was considered to be one of the mistresses of Baal. Asherah means Mother Earth, this nation Israel. She began to worship the earth, all these created things, rather than the creator. She worshipped all the hosts 
of heaven. They look to the stars in the sky for guidance, for wisdom, for instruction, for how to live rather than the one true God. They used omens and divination and all of this for guidance. They served Baal and in serving Baal, they adopted the practice of child sacrifices. They offered their sons and their daughters alive into the fire in order to please some fake false gods and they sold their bodies for evil. Now, you might go back to the books of Exodus and to Deuteronomy and you can find passages in there which talks about all the commands that the God that God gave Israel. And as you read through those commands, you read through those laws. They're almost disturbing to read about some of them. And you almost ask God, why, why do you have to give this law? I mean, why do you even think about that? Why even put that in there? I mean, who would do that? This is so like warped, so twisted. See, God, he gave all these laws concerning a wide range of evil things that we don't even want to think about. Why? Because this is what all the other nations on the earth were doing. In Israel, well, she would take all those practices and she would begin to do them herself even in some cases becoming more wicked than the nations around her this is how far she had fallen she was supposed to be a light and instead israel embraced the darkness the darkness of the cultures and god was so angry that he removed her from his sight she had received warning after warning after warning, but they got to a point where they hated the warnings. They hated the commands. They hated God, and so God removed her from her sight. They achieved the end result of their rebellion. See, that's the end. That's, that's where this whole downward cycle of sin leads to. Phase six, step six, is you achieve the end result of rebellion, achieving the end result of rebellion. All that's left was Judah. That's what we read there in 2 Kings. And the verse next, the, the following verse tells us that Judah would follow in the footsteps of Israel. If she would have only looked to the north, if she would have only seen what was happening to the northern kingdom, Israel, perhaps Judah would have turned and would have done something different. But instead, she just continued to follow in Israel's footsteps herself. She ad adopted the cultures, the practices of Israel. Now, God in his mercy, even though Judah would also be captured and taken into captivity, God in his mercy would bring Judah back out of captivity. Israel, Israel continues to be scattered to this day. It won't be till the end when God gathers those 10 tribes that are kind of lost out, scattered away, that he brings them back. You know, who would have thought that this nation that God had formed is this nation that was now two kingdoms, a nation that began with a, a promise to a wandering nomad, a nation that started in such a small, insignificant kind of a way, a nation that God had shown his strong arm to in delivering her out of slavery in Egypt, this nation that was full of such hope and such life would reach her demise because of her sin. See, we, we look back over what happened to the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Judah. And we know that these, this nation would experience so much sorrow. 
This nation that was preserved by God would now be smitten by God. This nation would be pierced for their own transgressions. This nation would be crushed because of their own iniquities. There would be no lasting peace. This nation would be oppressed and afflicted because she had gone astray and it would be God's will. You know, this is why the prophets speak. The prophets speak to this nation to try to warn them, hey, this is what's coming. But at the same time, the prophets would speak to get them to look past the storm clouds and to see a savior, to see this hope that there would be one who is coming, who would not be pierced for his own transgressions, but he would be pierced for ours. He would not be crushed for his own iniquities, but he would be crushed for ours. He would be one who could bring lasting peace. And so the prophets, they speak. They speak to warn, yes, but also to offer hope, to get us to look past the storm clouds to see the Savior. A Savior where we experience this peace together. This is the message of the prophets. It was never to an individual king. It was always to a people. And now it comes to you and me to tell us that, yes, we sin together. We suffer together, but we repent together. We are a light together. We shine together. There is peace together. It's all together. And for us today, it's together, together for the 757. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who's after people. And God, even as we study this morning the history of the nation Judah and the nation of Israel, this one nation that divided into two kingdoms, God, we see your grace and how you continually reached after them. And God, when they were incapable of repenting and making things right, God, you would then send your son, Jesus, who could do for them and for us what we could never do for ourselves. And now you invite us to be a light, a light together. May we be that light. We need your help, so we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.